You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello, and welcome to the very last edition of the podcast for this year. This week, we'll be looking back on 2011 with the Independence Health Editor Jeremy Lawrence. He's given BMJ web editor David Payne a roundup of all the big medical stories, as well as explaining why he thinks it's been a positive year for the NHS. And obstable. It's a phrase that will be familiar to many hospital doctors, but what does it actually mean? Duncan Jarvis talks to Greg Scott, an academic clinical fellow at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust, about his investigation. Greg, you've been looking at the phenomenon of obstable. Um, so for people in the UK, it's probably immediately obvious what you mean by that. But perhaps for everyone else, you could set out why obstable appears in the notes. Any doctor that's spent time in hospital practice in the UK will have seen this phrase, obstable. The term obs refers to the nursing observations, i.e. those that appear in the chart next to every bedside. And this phrase is written daily in countless hospital notes. But we wonder, what does it really mean? There seems to be no professional consensus about when it should be used. And we think it might be so liberally used that the term has just become meaningless. It's almost just to say, I've had a glance at the notes and they generally look all right. So you looked at notes in three hospitals to find out how often obstable was in there. What did you find? So we found that the phrase obstable occurred in about 80% of notes that we looked in. Interestingly, the phrase occurred on average on the second day of admission. So that suggests doctors are happy to call a patient's observation stable after only two days of data. We found that in about three quarters of cases, there was an abnormality in the observations in the 24 hours leading up to the use of the phrase obstable. And in these cases, the most common abnormalities were uh, low blood pressure, and also a raised respiratory rate. We also found that in about one-fifth of cases, that abnormality occurred in every one of the observations in the 24 hours leading up to obstable. Um, So there, obstable could have the two meanings of stable as in in normal and everyday life, and stable as in holding steady. Yes, and that's something we were trying to tease apart this difference between stable meaning normal as a snapshot and normal in terms of allowable variations over time. So if you look at diurnal variations, so the way that our blood pressure and heart rate vary over 24 hours, are people, when they're writing obstable, referring to that phenomenon? In this area, what was interesting was that on average, yes, the diurnal variation scene was within what you would consider normal for normal, healthy individuals. However, there were several cases where enormous swings in variation were also declared stable, such as a change in blood pressure of 80 millimetres of mercury, which clearly isn't normal at all. So is it time to ban this phrase from hospitals? Should we uh, be getting a campaign from the chief medical officer to to stamp it out? Um, I think the difficulty would be coming up with a substitute. Because when pushed for time, doctors will search for a phrase that's easier than writing out the six observations in full. 
We've discussed in the paper how terms such as OBS normal or OBS satisfactory might feel too committal to the author, suggesting that the author is completely happy with the observations. And I think maybe junior doctors would feel a bit uneasy about declaring that level of satisfaction with uh, the observations. So probably Obstable has become so ubiquitous because it has that element of uncertainty or ambiguity about it. Have you stopped using it? I'm certainly more aware of... (laughs) Um, No, I haven't stopped using it, but I do smile to myself when I find myself writing it. Feel a bit naughty. Yeah. And I should also say that I'm working in acute medicine, so I only see patients between hours sort of zero and four. So that would be uh, audacious to write obstable in that case. (laughs) Greg Scott there. As you may have guessed, that paper is one of our Christmas offerings, is up online now. Next up, here's the independents Jeremy Lawrence and the BMJ's David Payne. Well, it's that time of the year again when we do our annual roundup of the year. And as ever, I've got Jeremy Lawrence, health editor of The Independent, with me in the studio. Hello, Jeremy. Hello. This is getting a fiction eye. I think this is your third year, third or fourth year that you've talked to us about the stories that have caught your eye over the year. You're right. Yes, yes. I think it is the third year. Yes. yes. Well, thank you for that. <clears throat> and um, we also know that it does very, very well, this programme, because I think people like to listen to it to sort of gen up if they're going for interviews and things. So no pressure there. But... Um, I think the first story you want to talk about today, Jeremy, is uh, is flu, um, which uh, obviously was hitting the headlines this time last year. That's right. It, just about this time last year, actually. I think history shows that uh, pandemic flu, swine flu, as we got last year, yes. pandemics come in waves. Certainly in the 1918 great pandemic that swept the world, um, the second wave was actually bigger than the first. And that proved true uh, for the swine flu pandemic, too. I mean, nothing like on the same scale, of course, very, very small compared to the 1918 pandemic. But um, in fact, last year, there were, by the end of the winter, 562 deaths. And that was 100 more or so than during the pandemic year in 2009. Wow, and that was in Uh, the UK? That was in the UK, yes, Yes, of course, worldwide. I'm not Mm. sure what the figure was. In fact, The Independent was the first to report this about this time last year. Uh, The story ran on from there. And, I mean, I think what it triggered was a lot of publicity about the level of vaccination Mm. and problems with the vaccine supply which has always been controlled by GPs. And yes. the department announced at the end of the winter that it would in future be controlled centrally right. because there were shortages, people were queuing, uh, health workers were not adequately vaccinated, pregnant women in particular were not well vaccinated. And of course, that was the one big difference between swine flu and uh, seasonal flu was mm. that where a seasonal flu targets the elderly, swine flu... Uh, hit the young and the middle age, there were actually, among those 562 deaths, there were 50 children and nine pregnant women. So that is very unusual for flu, and that caused a lot of concern. Yes. And uh, led to, as I say, a a, a review of the vaccine delivery strategy. Yes. And how's that story shaping up this year? I mean, will we start to see those sort of, um, you know, flu stories that we we saw this time last year? Are you getting a sense of that yet? Well, I, of course, monitor these figures pretty closely, and I look at the HPA website on a weekly basis, and uh, the, the line is trending below all recent years. In fact, 
If I were a betting man, I would say that uh, flu could be the lowest ever on record this year. Right. Certainly on the present trend. Of course, you never can tell. But experts say that if we don't get a sharp rise in flu before Christmas, we are unlikely to get an epidemic. Right. And uh, it looks that way at the moment. Of course, it's been very warm. That may have something to do with it. Yes. It's the third year after the... Uh, swine flu pandemic. So, fingers crossed, we may get away very lightly this right. winter. Okay, and uh, I see your colleague Steve Connor's got a very interesting story in today's Independent about, um, you know, alleged censorship of two papers that were submitted to Nature and Science, which um, we won't go into here, but I think yeah. they're worth reading. So they do they certainly to... are. It's a very interesting debate about how far, how open you can be when you've got uh, a, an experiment of this sort dealing with a, a potentially lethal pathogen, that yes. is uh, bird flu, which they've managed to genetically engineer uh, to spread very easily uh, among ferrets. But ferrets are are a good model for the human disease. So uh, it's an interesting debate. Good. uh, Well, I think you've given us a very good teaser there. So do please go onto the independent website and read that story. Um, Tell us about your next story. Well, I think the NHS reforms is, is, of course, the big story of the year. I thought you might mention that. (laughs) And um, the NHS bill was published just about this time last year. And the debate continued all through the winter, uh, through the Commons. It was moving through the Commons. And uh, as we all know, famously, David Cameron paused the NHS bill, Mm. an unprecedented move, I believe, uh, for a further review, a further think. Yes, with Um, Steve... um, Steve Field, that's right, who chaired the NHS Future Forum, a a, a committee of the great and good, to have another look at the bill. And uh, they uh, sat for three months, and in June they published their conclusions. And the conclusions were basically to uh, incorporate a number of safeguards uh, against what critics saw as the main uh, weaknesses of the bill, yes. uh, and uh, to add several layers of bureaucracy, clinical senates and, and so on, um, uh, on a bill that was designed, of course, to remove layers of bureaucracy. So yes. uh, uh, some people might say that the resulting bill is a bit of a dog's breakfast. Right. What the NHS Future Forum did was sufficient to allay fears within the Commons for the bill to pass its second reading. It moved on to the Lords, where it is now. It's uh, subject to uh, uh, many amendments, which are being debated in the Lords as we speak. And the bill is due to become law next summer. Right. Um, there are, I mean, all sorts of issues around the bill. Uh, there's the cost in the first place, three and a half billion, it's estimated at implementing all these changes at a time when the NHS is under enormous financial pressure. There's the issue of switching power to GPs, which uh, is the principal aim of the bill to devolve power to the local area. Who knows your health best? Why your GP? Therefore, the GP should have control of the funds. Um, but there are were worries that uh, this could destabilize the health economy, and so the point that the Uh, future forum made was that we must redress that balance, uh, impose clinical senates, give more of a say to hospital doctors in order that uh, GPs don't withdraw too much of the 
work and the funds from the hospitals and, as I say, destabilise the economy. Yes. We talked about clinical sentence, actually, as our friends of the Journal Party last week. Some people that were there were talking about them. The details seem very sketchy at the moment. One sort of guest there said that, you know, they, they, were, they were really sort of a sop to the, to the secondary care sector just to make sure that, you know, that they were involved and, didn't, and felt some ownership of the, of the reforms. Is that your take? Uh, absolutely my take, I think. Uh, I was reading Paul Corrigan's blog the other day, the former number 10 advisor, and he was asking, what are clinical senates for exactly? Mm. And I think you're exactly right. I think it's to allay fears in the secondary sector yes. about the impact of the reforms on hospitals. Right. Um, but I do want to just raise one point. Uh, one of the chief criticisms of the bill is that it's going to privatise the NHS. Mm. We heard precisely the same criticisms 20 years ago when Thatcher was introducing yes. her reforms. The purchaser-provider split was going to allow uh, part of the NHS to be hived off the, the hospitals and clinics and taken over by the private sector and the state would continue to fund it. It hasn't happened. Mm. And there is one great difference between today and those days 20 years ago. For Throughout the NHS's 60-plus-year 60 60 year history, it has been a subject of contention. Is this the best way to run a health service? Yes. Today, for the first time in its history, we have political consensus that the NHS, a national state-run health service, is the best way to provide health to all of a country's citizens. Mm. David Cameron has backed the NHS, has pledged Tory support to the NHS, unlike any previous Tory premier, pledging um, to maintain the NHS's budget in real terms, unlike every other government department other than international development. So that is a major vote of confidence in the NHS. And what is important to realise is that the bill is permissive. It is not prescriptive. Hmm. That is to say that nobody knows how this is going to work on the ground. And the question really is, of course, the critics are right to worry about what potential there is for privatisation and for other kinds of harm. But ultimately, it will come down to how doctors and managers interpret it. And there is enormous public support for the NHS, and that extends to the staff who work in it. I think that the NHS will be broadly recognisable in five or ten years uh, to the system that we have now. Right, so that's a very optimistic view. Back to your point about um, you know, the, the, the privatisation. I mean, obviously we've had stories like Hinchinbrook and Circle taking over, which I think got seized on very much as evidence um, that, um, you know, that the private sector is going to play this disproportionate role. And of course we saw it when Alan Milburn was health secretary, didn't we? He first brought in the idea that, they, that private uh, industry could be brought in when there were capacity issues. But um, do you still stand by what you said, given that um, obviously we have, th- we have stories like Circle and Hinchinbrook taking over a hospital for a contract uh, of about 10 years? Well, of course, everyone will be watching Circle and Hinchingbrook very closely. And one of the big questions is, can Circle really make Hinchingbrook work uh, financially when every other effort by um, uh, the NHS has failed? And uh, some people are very dubious about this and think it's a lost leader and so on. I think the private sector will only ever operate at the margins Mm. where there are particular issues that cannot be solved by the NHS. Uh, I could be wrong. You're quite right to say that I have an optimistic view. It's based (laughs) on 20 years of observation of the NHS. And as I say, precisely these warnings were being uh, 
issued at the time of the Thatcher reforms 20 years ago. Yes. And the NHS is a great deal stronger than it was then. So I'm assuming by what you're saying that you know, Mr Lansley will still be health secretary in a year's time. Do you think that Andrew Lansley's well, job safe now? Uh, I, I, there was a great deal of speculation around the pause in the spring yes. as to whether he was going to survive. He did survive. He is still smiling. He's not a quitter. No. And his optimism and his commitment and so on is remarkable to behold. Of course, one reason why Cameron didn't sack him is that Lansley is really the only person who understands these reforms. Yes. So he's a difficult man to replace. Um, whether he'll uh, still be there beyond next summer, I think is is very much an open question. Yes. He has served as Shadow Health Secretary and now Health Secretary, something coming up to seven or eight years. Yes. That is a long time in the post, longer than any previous incumbent. Great. OK, Jeremy, well, what's next on your list of stories too that have caught your eye this year? Well, um, maternity mm. care has caught the headlines. There's, there's been a series of crises in maternity care this year, of reports from the CQC and the Ombudsman uh, about awful cases, um, and uh, warnings from uh, the Royal College of Midwives, the Royal College of Obstetricians, uh, principally about the shortage of midwives. Mm. Um, and the rising birth rate, especially in London, which has a, a young population. There have also been two major reports on caesareans and home births, both controversial issues yes. in maternity care. Um, if I look at caesareans first, this was uh, a new guidance from NICE, which has looked at what is a woman's right uh, to have a caesarean. And their conclusion is that most women who request a caesarean, this is maternal request where there isn't any medical need, can be reassured and their guidance says more should be done at an earlier stage to reassure women who are worried about birth that a natural birth is perfectly safe and they don't need a caesarean. However, if after that process the woman still requests a caesarean, then her desire should be recognised and she should be able Mm. to have the operation. That is a change from their previous guidance, which said um, caesareans should not normally be granted on the basis of maternal request alone. And I think it's absolutely right uh, in a modern health service where the uh, accent is very much on patient choice. Patients must have the ultimate say over the medical care they need Mm. uh, within reason. But I do think that uh, it is odd that NICE has made this recommendation at a time when, as we've said, the NHS is under enormous financial pressure because a caesarean is more expensive yes. than a natural birth. It's something like 1,700 versus for a caesarean versus something like 900 pounds for a, mm. a natural birth. And we see in other areas, cosmetic surgery, for example, or think of Viagra. If you have diabetes, something like that, you get Viagra on the NHS. Otherwise, you have to pay. It seems to me that this ought to apply to to caesareans as well. Where there is no medical need and it's on maternal request alone, if the woman insists, I think 
she ought to pay. Mm. I was talking to a doctor colleague last night who said that you know she 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 was fine with the decision, but she did feel that obviously you know women do need to be informed that you know this is surgery, this is surgery, and it will actually put you out of action for a while. And um, as long as that was sort of made clear, as you said to the patient, it was was key really. Precisely. That's yeah. that that is the point of the NHS guidance to yes. to to step in early enough with a woman who is anxious about birth to re- reassure her, because as they say, I'm sure it's true that that most women can be reassured if they are given the right information early enough. So tell us about home births then. Well there was a big report on home births too. In fact the biggest study ever done, 65,000 low risk births. We're only talking about low risk births here Mm. and comparing the outcomes home birth with hospital birth and birth in midwife units. And what the researchers found was that for second and subsequent births, there is really no difference. Home births are as safe as hospital births Mm. uh, and have a lower rate of intervention, fewer caesareans, lower use of forceps, that sort of thing. So there is a, a, a positive message there for women who want a home birth. For first births, and again, I emphasise we're talking about only low-risk women. Yes. Um, there is a difference, um, a small increase in risk. In relative terms, it's a threefold increase. But this is a very low risk to begin with. I think there were only t- 250 adverse outcomes mm. uh, amongst the 65,000 births. So it's a very small increase in risk. But it is nevertheless there. And so that is something that women have to think about. And again, uh, the researchers emphasized this is a matter of patient choice. Women need to be informed about these risks. Mm. And it's a matter for them of balancing the risk of an adverse outcome against the higher rate of intervention in a hospital birth. So it's a matter for each individual woman. Do you think that'll be borne out with with a rise in home births? Well, I think it may do. I Mm. think it may do. Certainly, we are a long way behind the Netherlands. Mm. Um, Something like 25% of babies in the Netherlands are born at home. Um, uh, Whereas here, it's something like um, 2%. So finally, Jeremy, um, obviously, it's the uh, season of goodwill to all men. Um, You've got an alcohol story for us. Well, indeed, um, Scotland has led the way on minimum pricing for alcohol, a debate that is being had around the world. It was kicked off by Liam Donaldson, former chief medical officer for the UK, uh, two, three years ago. And there is no doubt that price plays a part in the level of drinking. Drinking has increased enormously. The price of alcohol has fallen dramatically. Mm. Compared with 30 years ago in 1980, alcohol is today 44% cheaper. You can buy your weekly allowance of 21 units for less than £4 in uh, uh, supermarkets. Really? I didn't know that. That's an amazing statistic. (laughs) It is is pretty amazing. And Scotland has taken this issue on. Uh, Its Alcohol Act, which came into force in October, provides for a minimum price. It hasn't actually set a minimum price yet. It is due to do so by next summer. Uh, When this uh, measure was first proposed, the Scottish government set a, a price of 45 pence a unit. It's likely that they will propose the same minimum price. And uh, that could well be implemented 
before next summer. It will be watched uh, around the world. One senior doctor that I spoke to who was at a a number 10 meeting some years ago, this is a debate about this, Terry Leahy, the um, former boss of Tesco, was there, ferociously defended the right of the supermarkets to sell cheap alcohol, insisted that it had no effect on consumption. Mm. And the doctor I was talking to was so outraged, he's never shopped at Tesco since. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, his view is, I mean, if we can't persuade the government to uh, implement a minimum price, then it may be time for a boycott of the supermarkets. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy. Um, It's always a pleasure talking to you and uh, we'll see you next year. Very good. Nice to see you. And now a bit of a teaser for you. After a great deal of thought, our proposal uh, is that his, his wishes should be respected. His story has never been properly ended. And I think the best way to properly end it is to bury him at sea. That's from one of our Christmas videos, which explores the moral debate on what to do with the snatch skeleton of Charles Byrne, who suffered from acromegaly. Go to bmj.com forward slash multimedia to see it in full. And as we're feeling extra generous this year, there's also a video up there looking into Beethoven's deafness, with the Isolo String Quartet exploring how his hearing loss affected his composition. Lastly, a huge thank you to all those who've donated to Lifebox, our Christmas charity this year. We've managed to raise enough for at least 44 pulse oximeters through our print coupons alone so far, but as every penny goes towards saving lives through safer surgery, please do keep it coming. Go to lifebox.org forward slash donations if you'd like to help. All that leaves me to say is have a very Merry Christmas and a restful New Year. We're having a break next week, but come January the 6th, we'll be looking into the dangers of missing data for medical research. Thanks very much for joining us. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.